Hello and welcome to the Lifefulness Podcast. How are you today, my little chickens? I am delighted to deliver up another hour of chat around secular spirituality, around reimagining the congregation in a way that matches the world as we're in right now. And uh, really, this one has got a specific focus on actually how can we change the world? What are the places? What are the ways? What are the methods that are available to us to make a difference when so often it seems like the problems are so massive, the problems are so out there, the problems are too big? What can we do? And our guest today is someone that I've, you know, when you've got someone you've got a career crush on, you just go and look at what they do and you think, oh my God, that's so interesting. And she's also, her name is Cassie Robinson, great at communicating. And she's someone who's got a fascinating career, which started off in design, fashion design, then moved into this area called service design. And that is all about looking at public services, about the way we go and actually uh, use like the activities and the sort of uh, processes that we're part of in the everyday, uh, you know, to look at that. And she has gone from that. She founded Tech for Good, this whole movement, which is around, you figured it out, seeing how you can use tech for good. And uh, it's gone really well, actually. She has uh, solved all the problems with tech. It now only does things for good. And that's why she got out of that. But the specific reason that I wanted to speak to her was because she has now become a really senior leader in something called Big Lottery. They are a charitable organisation who help distribute all the money which is raised by the National Lottery in the UK. And so her job is to go and look at the best places to go and invest the money that's raised from people uh, hoping to win a million quid uh, and to decide actually what's the best way this can be used to make change. And so when you speak to her, she's like, really, she's seeing the things which can give us cause for optimism. She is sensing the places where you can actually go and see a difference being made. And in particular, they've gone and emphasised how you can do work on the stories we tell. So that's something huge that we get into. And there's so much else besides. So... It's up for me to get out of the way, go and follow us online, go and find Sanson and Jones on Twitter and Facebook and places like that, go and find the Life on This podcast, and uh, here is Cassie Robinson. Welcome, uh, Cassie Robinson, to the uh, Life on This podcast. How are you today? Um, I am, yeah, I'm good. I This, this recording is happening um, just three, well, maybe it's even four weeks into um, a holiday so I'm I'm currently sat in a bedroom in Cambridge well in a little village outside Cambridge um, where my mum lives where I've been for a few days before I head off somewhere else so I'm feeling quite relaxed. The first question we ask everyone on this uh, podcast Cassie what was uh, the religious background spiritual philosophical uh, you know in the broadest possible sense to your childhood? It was actually very, very minimal. If anything, it was, I would say, both of my parents who who then divorced when I was four anyway. So then 
also my step-parents are probably all atheists. When I was growing up in this small village that I'm currently in, um, I just remember really wanting to go to Sunday school because all my friends were going and I wasn't, you know, like I wasn't really allowed. My parents were sort of actively not keen for me to do that. So I would say, yeah, it, it was pretty non-existent actually, but my primary school was a, you know, a Church of England primary school. So I did grow up singing hymns and I went to brownies before I got thrown out. Sorry, we're going to have to jump in there. Why did you get thrown out? You're not just going to leave that sort of bombshell. One of the reasons I think was because me and my best friends kept rolling our dresses up into our brown leather belts quite high. So we kept wearing our shirts too short and the brown owl was really un unimpressed. <laughs> Okay. So, and, and then you later became a designer, which we're going to get into. So that, good to see that started early. So Carrie, you got kicked out of brownies in your sort of uh, really a dissolute childhood. Yeah. Um, yeah. Kicked out of brownies and didn't really. Yeah. So religion wasn't really a part of anything at home. That's for sure. Um, and then, yeah, just just in school, I guess. And, and my short my short experience at brownies, I didn't go on to guides. I mean, certainly not with that sort of uh, trouser rolling up, uh, shirt rolling up behavior. Like, I suppose this is one of the things where it is really, sometimes really hard to put words uh, to this. I would say that one thing I notice in your work and how you talk about connection and how you talk about change, and maybe it's because you also trained as a designer and you've got a sort of creative understanding for problems. I would say that you've there's almost a spiritual or suddenly soulful sensibility to your work today. Is that sort of characterization fair or in a language that you understand? I, I sort of thought that when I saw a picture on your really long holiday of you having a gong bath, and I suddenly know that that's, that's not the thing which everyone in the UK feels comfortable with. It's, um, you know, it's a huge, a huge gong that you, you sort of create beautiful, enveloping sounds with um and you can get different size ones and basically it was me and a friend uh we had we were away with uh one of my best friends who has um incurable cancer and so we took her to the beach and my other friend that we were with she's the one that's trained in all these different like instruments i'm definitely not but i guess we thought being by the sea and doing that kind of sound bath or sound spa um would be a really kind of healing and beautiful experience um and it was and I did learn a little bit about how to play but uh, yeah I mean some of some of the language you just used I don't know if I totally understand what you mean but that's okay because I'll just just I'll just talk a bit about uh, like soulfulness or everything I do is in some way rooted in I do have a belief in 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 the kind of cosmos, if you like. That's kind of um, I'm someone that really believes in and really kind of perceives and reads the world through energy. I think that's partly because I've had experiences in my life, like connections with people, walking into rooms, being in spaces where you know you just have that energetic connection with some people more than others or different qualities or types of connection in and and in a way that that is often undefinable and 
or indefinable. I don't know which is the right word. And I think when you have those kind of experiences and you can't qualify them or quantify them or quite name them, then you are going to have a set of beliefs that isn't rooted in what we can always know or evidence or understand or so so I definitely have this kind of yeah this belief in I love to believe that we live in a world that is full of mystery and full of things that we can't possibly ever know or understand and I'm very okay with that and I don't feel a need to try and prove or evidence everything and I'm probably someone that kind of believes in something until proven otherwise rather than the other way around so you know maybe there are fairies or piskies down in Cornwall and I'm not going to say there isn't because I have no reason to know that there definitely isn't um in the same way that yeah I I guess that kind of feels really important to me this idea of awe wonder mystery and and the sort of not knowing um and then this sort of energetic quality and connection and and that for me is very much linked to this idea of the cosmos and that we are all interconnected we are all part of something much bigger um and we are all just energy really who happen to be in different physical bodies or have man manifested in different ways in this material or physical world but one it's beautiful and it's really interesting how that I've, i somehow i feel that in your work and i mostly see your work online i think it's in all the sense of connectedness you see in things that sense of relationships of uh sort of really believing in uh the power of connecting people uh, right down to your love of uh your, your design and so many of these other things that even though there isn't a word for it i think you do sense these things. And what we always ask all our guests again is that if there was one thing from spiritual communities or congregations or religion that you think our increasingly secular world could learn, uh, what do you think it would be? One thing. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, people just go with the whole thing. But uh, yeah, one thing. I guess given my current role, some of my time at the National Lottery Community Fund, I do think that the like yeah community the, the building and connecting of community feels like something that spiritual communities or faith communities have done very well so that would probably be a quite practical thing that's maybe very obvious and I know like some of your work Sanderson has been a lot about the congregations the building community the building connection the building relationship but I suppose there's also something about the storytelling, the narrative, the myth making, the kind of the artifacts, the I mean, there's lots about religion that I find deeply problematic. Um, and I know we're talking about spirituality, not religion. And even the word spirituality, I'd probably like dance around, which is why I like to talk about energy. Um, but I do think, yeah, there's something often really beautiful and and you know, I used already the words awe and wonder. Um but beauty, awe and wonder and narrative and storytelling. I think a lot of those things have been manifested in, in different ways within kind of spiritual communities. Uh, and that's actually one of the things that we were going to uh, kick off with asking you about. And because to our mind, the, in the heart of our work, which is all about how can you go and learn from spiritual communities and congregations, is this question of story and narrative. And James, what would you say is the sort of position of storytelling in religion and storytelling in spiritual communities? I think of 
religious traditions basically as collections of stories, but stories that are meant to change the world, right? Stories which encode ideas about how the world is supposed to be. And I always feel like the main mode of communication that religions uses is narrative, it's parable, it's moral stories that try and show us what the world should be like. And one of the big gaps that I think the contemporary secular world has is a lack of compelling connective narratives that help people live. Or actually, I'm not sure that's quite right, because we've got tons of narratives that encode morals, like all the fantasy movies and all the Marvel movies. There are contemporary mythos, but there's something that they're not connected to communities and not connected to institutions. And so I think that they lose a lot of their power by being free floating narratives. They don't have kind of a practical theory of change attached to them. So I think that the, the impulse for storytelling is something that obviously is continued into the contemporary era, but the institutional support for making those stories real in people's lives is, uh, being increasingly lost. And that's one of the things I thought was interesting about your work, Cassie, your work about with narrative practitioners. And I saw that you wrote recently on your medium about some work you've been doing in that area. And I was really interested to learn more about it. Yeah, so that's so one of the things that we're looking at. I mean, I am, there's lots more people with a lot more expertise in narrative work than me. Um, but I, I can still talk a bit about my particular interest um, stems from actually quite a, a long time ago um, in the earlier days of the point people when so i'm just going to jump in can you explain maybe the what the the point people is as well just for our our listeners yeah well the point people is hard to explain because it's <laughs> kind of been this um i mean the point people was originally set up in 2010 almost I don't really like to do things in opposition to because I think it's not the not a good energy, but but <laughs> you well, did it I, anyway. It was in a way to kind of create an alternative to what was at that point a very dominant narrative around social entrepreneurship, very much about and and there's nothing wrong with social entrepreneurship. We need social enterprises, but it was very much about this idea of like building something individually to create change and impact. And I felt like there was other roles that were needed if we're going to shift systems and we're going to kind of move into a different world. The people that are weaving and connecting and sense making and storytelling and, and kind of very good at bringing together different perspectives and disciplines. And that was really the point people was trying to give visibility and trying to create more of an understanding and recognition of those kind of roles in sort of systemic change work that was the intent of the point people I would say over the last 11 years it's it's come to mean and do quite different things depending on which one of the 16 point people you talk to you'd get probably a quite different answer um but but what it has consistently done is you know every month for the last 11 years we still meet as a collective um we still represent some quite different experiences and perspectives and we try and actively still share and connect what we're learning and sensing across the different landscapes in which we exist and try and like weave that together in into some kind of shared or collective 
understanding of what's going on in the world right now. And I suppose then in terms of that question of, you know, you, you're not an, an expert on storytelling, uh, but like, why is it that you, from your position as the, uh, uh, in the big lottery, where you're able to look at lots of different things and you are, you know, in your position, you do have to go and, you know, not pick winners and losers, but you've got to go and see the areas where you think change can be made. What was it about the storytelling uh, and narrative work, which you think this is actually a really high leverage place to go and make a difference in the world? Yeah, so I think some of I think some of the work we're doing at, at the fund at the moment around narrative, we, we've seen we've resourced this sort of scoping work, is is to think about what's the infrastructure that's needed for better narrative work in sort of UK civil society or UK communities, and that and I talk about infrastructure, meaning like the long term investment in kind of shared resource shared knowledge shared learning shared practice like how do you there's already lots of individual organizations and practitioners working in the narrative space some of that maybe is fragmented some of it definitely needs better resourcing and then there's also some gaps um so that's kind of what we're trying to understand at the moment is well what what is needed specifically from my perspective, um, I feel like there's still not a common practice or a, a well-developed practice around what I would call systemic storytelling or systemic narrative. Actually, I wouldn't use the word storytelling. Systemic narrative. And by that, I mean, if you're trying to shift, like when, when I was doing Tech for Good, which was a long time ago now, feels like an, a different different life, um, we tried to do this this series of content we and we were very inexperienced um, called the macroscope, and we took housing, for example, and we tried to within bless you James, within um within within this film we tried to talk about the nap we tried to link together the policy framing around housing and homelessness, the innovation, the entrepreneur stuff that was happening, the institutional piece. Um, you know, it's that it's, it's very mechanistic to think about levers of change. But if you're trying to take a systemic issue or a systemic challenge, something that needs to sh really shift, and there's different ways that people are trying to influence and shift around that issue. How do you tell a systemic narrative about all those different things that are going on simultaneously into some kind of cohesive whole, into some kind of big change narrative, as Jenny Winhall would call it. And that's that practice in particular is something that I'm longing to, I don't know how to do it well. Um, I'd love to learn more how to do it. And in all the narrative practice I see happening, I don't really see that being done. Now, so I'm of just going to stop you there, yeah. just because they're like this isn't a. Uh, I think there'll be probably a number of things which our listeners could want to get a bit more clear on. So there's this idea that in let's say on something like housing, in order for this to share, change, there's all these different things which are happening, and in fact, in order to really like help, you know, all the different moving parts to get to a place 
actually having the right story around it and being able to tell that story is something which can be a galvanizing force like why is that again why is that story so important like in everyone's got a story everyone like what is the thing which makes that such a a key uh point of uh you know a, a key point of difference a key sort of leverage point use the word leverage twice already in this i feel like i'm over leveraged on that and now it's three times <laughs> i know and we, we need a better word than leverage but anyway you explain that much better than me um why that's important so so firstly yeah maybe a, a more visual way of thinking about it is you've got like a tapestry of lots of different parts or or the narrative initiative in the us talks about stars and constellations so stars would be the individual stories and constellations is obviously how those stars come together the reason i'm particularly interested in how you create the narrative of the constellation is because i think firstly i think that's how we can orient ourselves better i think it does pull us together i think it can create a pull it is like a map it helps orient us like constellations do in the night sky. By the way, I'm just going to stop you again, only because I love seeing how careful you are with language. And you're like, map. Oh, no, is the map's not a territory. That's the wrong analogy. Uh, you're like, this is an orienting thing. Is it a compass? Is it a harp? <laughs> Actually, compass is a good, compass is more a word I like to. We need a compass, not a map. Okay, um, all right. Or something. Um, but I suppose one of my biggest frustrations in the kind of social change or civil society I, again i don't know what to call it um is you, you know we're obsessed with case studies and individual stories and the, the voices of people with lived experience and all of those things are not not important but we strip away the nuance we strip away the context we and I just think we need to be braver and more adept at bringing complexity into narratives. And, you know, like I, I sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll try and write a blog or, um, you know, I'm always being told that the language, I, I need to change my language. I need to write blogs that are only 600 to 900 words. You, you can clearly see I never managed to do that. We need more systemic narratives because we are living in a world that is incredibly complex. And every time we try and simplify it into one story, we are losing so much of, of, of what's going on. So that's kind of why it's so important to me that we need better practice around this. James, what uh, what's resonating with you? And I've, I've used resonating and also leveraging a lot. I need another word for resonating. I need another word for leveraging. James, uh, can you uh, answer what's resonating and also give me two new words for that by the end of it? Well, maybe we can think of the gong bath and think about <laughs> you know, vibrating something. Yeah, something yeah, yeah. Is vibrating in me. So, firstly, I I like what you say about increasing the complexity of the stories that we tell about. Particularly, it sounds like about social change. Some of the efforts it looks like you're working with are about social change efforts and solving problems in society. And I, I think you're right that quite often people use illustrative stories of success in a way that's quite thin and people have become inured to them because we've been bombarded with so much advertising and, and in the political sphere, even, you know, the, 
the story of the person I met on the campaign trail who illustrates this problem that I'm going to solve with this policy has become a cliche now so much that politicians can hardly tell those stories effectively. So a new, more complex, richer mode of storytelling does seem to be necessary. But also what I was thinking was what you were talking about made me remember um, part of my graduate studies with a, a organizer in the US called Marshall Gans, and he teaches this thing called public narrative, right? Which is a, a method of, you know it, right? So Cassie knows all about public narrative. There's a method of using stories in a particular conscious way, not just to illustrate some problem or, or some success your program has had, but as part of a theory about what motivates people to action and how we can articulate futures and move people into those new futures. So it's quite conscious and strategic. It's very different. Marshall is always saying it's not an anecdote, right? It's not a story you tell at a party to amuse people or something you put in a brochure to sell your college. It's a strategic use of narrative in order to articulate a new possibility and give people the emotional resources to move towards that new possibility. And that is a difficult skill to learn. I helped teach that class for a number of years and many people, including leaders in politics and CEOs of companies and, and people in the army, they, it was very difficult for get, to get them to realize that what actually moves people to want to make change are this, these emotional components and the, the, the vision, the achievable vision of a different world. And it, it, it's difficult to teach people how to do. And I agree with you that we need infrastructure that teaches people how to do this and then disseminates those sorts of narratives. Can you come and teach us those? <laughs> I totally can. I'd love to. I was going to send you an email afterwards because I always love teaching this stuff. It's something that I've done here in the States a little bit for groups around St. Louis and other places, but it just feels so powerful when people get it because suddenly instead of instead of seeing a story as a nice garnish on top of a um, book about a program where the real stuff is the facts and figures. They understand that actually, no, the real matter of social change is the stories if you tell them effectively. And the other stuff comes later. It's what you're enabled to get, you're able to get people to do with the story. So uh, I could go on like this for hours because it makes me so excited. <laughs> Uh, James is actually the face of Marshall Gans's work and his uh, his uh, story is used in the training. And I was at a I was at a, and by the way, that's such a minor claim to fame for people who are in the sort of narrative space. But uh, if you're not into narratives, believe you me, woof, it's quite something. And uh, I was I was at a different workshop and some people were watching James's video and I messaged James and then he messaged back. And then I said, oh, by the way, I was just on the just speaking to that guy and they were all mightily impressed so welcome to the world's <laughs> uh smallest celebrity sightings i think one thing which springs to mind there is there's this practical way of using one story to tell something about change and often this is used like with this specific goal in mind i'm going to tell this story and then we're going to change this policy here and then we're going to uh change this regulation at the gas station because uh joe uh, this happened to him, whatever it might be. But actually, I think there's something in your work, which is also about even helping people to conjure up 
that a world can be dramatically different. And I think that's one of the hardest things that we face of like really imagining that because we're so uh, overwhelmed with news, which really makes it seem like everything's stuck. So I suppose that's one thing in relation to stories of like this narrative work, like how do people, how can they even cast this vision of where we can go to, but also afterwards like to go and speak about the other work that you're doing. So yeah, what, you know, what can people do to even go and imagine some future state, which isn't like our own? Yeah, that's, that is another area of work that we've been doing quite a lot around over the last a couple of years. Um, this idea of sort of collective imagining, because I suppose one of the things that I also didn't sort of pull out enough, maybe in relation to the constellation analogy, and it kind of links to Alex Evans's work around a larger us, but it is just that, you know, I'm, I'm so fascinated by the unit of the collective, um, whether that's collective imagination, collective wisdom, collective intelligence, collective narratives, collective design. I'm collective obsessed. I have a <laughs> blog post called Collective Obsessive. If there's um, a word and you can put collective in front of it, that word that, becomes better. That's what I want to do, yeah. Collective um, eggs. Boom. Done. <laughs> because I really believe in this idea that there are things that we can know and imagine um, and access as a collective that we can't possibly as an individual. Um, and so that's probably the, the kind of collective imagination came out of, in some ways, I, I was doing these sort of random experiments with a couple of friends, Sam Roddick and Deborah Jebeko, a few years ago around our collective consciousness. And that was also coming out of the kind of collective intelligence work that MIT and then kind of Jeff Mulgan was doing. And I'm a big fan of, of Jeff's work but felt like with Big Mind, the book, and, and actually a lot of the MIT stuff, that it wasn't, it's very much about our our our, our minds, hence the name of the book, and, and doesn't really touch on our embodied intelligence, our embodied knowing and wisdom, all the other ways that you can intuit. That's just generally something I'm really interested in. And I guess with the, with the imagination work, this is not a very good linear story, but... Um, it, it's very funny. complex though so that's why i'm loving it okay um it was also a recognition that in civil society particularly in the in the uk and civil society i was just in more and more conversations where i felt like people could only imagine civil society as being about delivering services and i found that so disheartening because our lives exist outside of services and I feel like that's primarily because so many people working in civil society are like exhausted and austerity has, you know, there's many reasons why that kind of deficit of imagination is there, but, but I do really feel it's there. And then I feel I'm going to contradict myself now. That's one way of looking at it. You could say that we're imagining something every, all the time in every action that we take every day we're kind of you know bill sharp talks about imaginal cells and i love that idea um what does that mean by the way imaginal cells yeah so i, I think of it as sounds like something part of a smear test <laughs> oh god that's, that's not where it takes my mind i mean i, I don't know swear. just there's nothing wrong with smear tests but yeah all cells all cells um <laughs> definitely isn't where my mind goes i think of it as like 
the 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 everyday magic and agency we have to even in the tiniest action and interaction and connection we can be imbuing that with the the future that we want we you know it, that that's what it means for me is like that the attentiveness the ten the tending to the future in everything that we're doing um but i don't know if that's what he meant by it but i think it <laughs> um he talks about the patterning of hope and the, the imaginal cells as being the patterning of hope. And I, again, I love, I just love the phrase, the patterning of hope. Um, but back to the, to imagination. So yeah, it feels like a lot of work in the systemic change community can sometimes just be about making the existing system better. Is it an, of even greater concern in, in the pandemic, I guess, where it does feel like so much more has been exposed there's more cracks there's more chance potentially to really shift things like are we really do we really have the orientation the compass to take us where we really need to go at this time some of my peers would say like amazing people like Anab Jane at Superflux would say we absolutely as a society have the ability to collectively imagine we, we we already have those ideas they've just been oppressed and dampened and like trodden down and you know there's they're not resourced then some people like jeff mulgan who's written a lot about our crisis of social imagination um would maybe say something slightly different i and then indy johar another friend of mine he would say that in some of the convenings we were in, in the earlier phases of the pandemic, he would kind of, in a very kind way, kind of laugh at a lot of us. The ideas that we were wheeling out as being about 10 years old now, you know, universal basic income, all of these sort of social innovations. I think Indy was like, is this all we've got? Like, this is all we've been talking about for years now. It doesn't feel like we're really fully comprehending the scale of change that is ahead of us um the severity like just just what's coming so i do feel like i really want to support and resource communities to be able to collectively imagine with more boldness more courage more like crazy kind of wild imaginations what might now be possible um, and that feels very under-resourced. You know, you don't, like, not many funders, I think, are kind of saying we're going to fund the collective imaginations in communities. Um, and I'm not saying that my employer would necessarily frame some of it in that way either. We did do this funding programme called the Emerging Futures Fund, and that really was to try and seed and resource communities, like seed new narratives, seed these kind of imaginal cells or these patternings of hope um, and resource communities to, to kind of go very practically into some of these practices of collective imagination. Man, I when speaking to you, I pick up so many uh, 
no, like, uh, ener- I'm going to say energetic, soulful. Uh, basically, if we were both religious, we'd be having a conversation about religion, right? <laughs> if you know, in terms of like the things that people are talking about, you know, getting communities together, you know, having embodied processes, which enable you to have a vision that you go towards, like it's, it's the kingdom of heaven on earth stuff. And, uh, and and I really see that there's this toolbox that you're sort of talking about, which is very different to a lot of things that people go and reach for. What are the other things that you see from where you are? I think on different days, I feel very differently about that question because I do, I have found it hard in the last months, you know, probably like all of us in different ways and for different reasons, like I've felt quite exhausted sometimes and and quite foggy in kind of where, I mean, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot going on in the world. And even, you know, in the last week or two, just like everything that is going on in Afghanistan and Lebanon and, you know, there's just, it, it can, I sometimes almost feel not embarrassed, but like, some of the stuff I will now go on to talk about um, can feel so far away or small or when there's these really real crises happening every day for many people. When I do, on a good day, I, um, you know, we've just done these 10 year grants. I have loved, there are initiatives out there that now have 10 years. I mean, it's not like they've got enough money for 10 years, but they have some money, which means they've got this long time frame. Um, and I think a lot more funding needs to be doing that kind of long-term funding. Um, and and that's initiatives like, you know, I, I think Kate Rayworth's work around the donut economic stuff is very important because we do need to have a different economic model. We, you know, like there's so many ways in which the market or capitalism is, is it doesn't work. I mean, I'm, and I am not an economist, so I'm not gonna speak too much more about that, but there are, I love how the donut has, you know, I, I think in some ways it, it's, it, well, Kate's done an amazing job of making something quite complex into something that is very applicable um, and like, I love that neighborhoods are using it, communities are using it, cities are using it, national governments are using it. And, you know, I, I'm really hopeful for, for that kind of work. Um, Just because like, again, is the donut a story? In some ways, yeah, I, I think it it is a story. It's, a, it's an artifact that has a narrative or a, sto- a set of stories and a narrative. And it's also, something that that they have very thoughtfully left partly open like it's porous too it's not a it's not a done story it's something that others are already building other stories around and seeing how they can use it in their contexts um which i think is really important with a lot of this kind of work a lot of the things we've funded in the with these 10 we've done nine grants that are for 10 years each and I would say one of the things that they have in common is that they are in some way, they, they, they are very good, I would say, at, at the kind of narrative work. Um, and they are really good at creating material and artifacts and things that ignite people's imagination and help people see what's possible. 
and and in fact one of the things that we almost assessed them on was is there a real like energy around what they're doing like is there a demand is not a good word in some ways because it's so like market kind of buzz yeah hype buzz, buzz, hype. <laughs> these um, are all those all just energy well. you know like yeah. the, 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 there's something in what they're doing that has captured people's imagination that has given people a sense of something else being possible and that that excites me um uh, another one that we funded through that is something called healing justice london um and Fazana Khan and many other amazing people that work with her. And for me, I mean, Fazana, just how she sees and experiences the world, I feel is so unique and beautiful and very, like she is definitely patterning an entirely different way of being in the work that they're doing. Um, the community they're building, the narratives that they're using. Um, it's just the the depth of that work is something that really excites me. It's a very different energetic. If, if I was to describe them all through my <laughs> reading of energy, it's a very different um, quality of energy to say the Donor Economics Action Lab. Um, it's like deep and, and rich and yeah, anyway, so that, the Healing Justice London, I would say anyone listening to, to look up their work. Um, another one that's really interesting, you may know of them already, Sanson, is um, we've we've been able to fund Open Systems Lab, which is Alistair Parvin and his, his team. Um, and the reason that I'm excited we've been able to fund that is because they are really dealing with what I would call and they call kind of like the deep code. They're looking at all the dark matter. They're looking at the regulations of land and ownership. They're looking at the kind of policy stuff. They're looking at the technology and the data layers. They're kind of looking at all of the stuff that often in the social innovation, social change world, doesn't get looked at but actually that's where some of the greatest opportunity for change sits so yeah that, that I'm excited about their work because they're kind of building and they're making things even WikiHouse which is one of which was one of their earlier initiatives WikiHouse was was really trying to show how you could potentially like people could make their own homes literally by using local manufacturing and having like open source patterns for, for house building. Now, WikiHouse in and of itself may never become like a really mainstream thing because the price points, the, the distribution, et cetera, like there might be too much to resolve, but it's a really good example of kind of propositioning a future reality it, it's a really good example of Alistair demonstrating what needs to change around home ownership land ownership law regulation all of, it, it basically helped him demonstrate all of the things that needed to change to make something like that possible so I love that kind of work too where people are kind of making something to yeah to, to kind of surface 
all of the barriers to that really becoming a reality and then trying to address those barriers. I was really struck, Cassie, by what you said about how you're working with a group of people and some of them could only think of, of civil society in terms of services. And I think that that insight reveals the kind of narrative vacuum that exists in many civil societies at the moment. Because the way I look at it, and I come to these, when I connect with civil society institutions, I guess we are one as a congregation ourselves in a way, we're part, part of what, the, is it the third sector? I don't know. I think that that's the term that we're part of. But I, I also lobby for changes in laws on behalf of my congregation with members of my congregation. I also, you know, go to things about health insurance. So I, I'm involved in trying to get changes to healthcare and all these sorts of different issues that we're involved in as a moral community. And I often feel my role is to remind people of what values a particular service or way of doing things is supposed to embody. Because a service is supposed to be a concrete instantiation of some moral value, right? It's supposed to be the way that we enact our care for each other. Like a, a healthcare service is supposed to be a instantiation of the moral commitments we have to each other's health or something like that. They're not free floating like products, which people just pick up from themselves. They're supposed to be a reflection of society's deepest values. But I feel like so often the connection between our values and what people see as these services has been completely lost. And I think that part of that is, and I'm speaking a little bit here as a someone who lives in the States and seems total breakdown of civil society here in many ways, and also seeing it happening from afar back in the UK where I grew up, we have very bad storytelling or narrative practice on the part of our political leaders. They can't tell a story. I've been watching what's happened with Brexit and with you know, all the discussions about, there's no narrative about the future of Britain that I've ever heard from any of these political leaders that is in any way inspiring or filled with any sort of positive values about the future. It just seems to be this very arid political discussion that's really about, as you say, kind of services and thing, you know, things that we're going to give you, but not connecting that into any bigger picture. I don't know if that's a question, but it's what you made me think of. I suppose, actually, the, one of those things that you'd say, I'd say that where they did tell a good story was Brexit, you know? Right. That For, was, uh, but it was a very negative one. James, I don't know if you can reveal your position on that, Cassie. Uh, uh, the uh, otherwise you'll get the the mail on Sunday writing about this podcast, but the uh, yeah, well that 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 was something which where there were people who realised that you had to go and tell a story about whatever it might be about something which is far more than services. It was far more than oh you know money over here, money over that. What's most important is something which was more soulful. And actually, James, when you were speaking, there's there is something that. And again, it's in the language you use that uh, of the sort of the moral commitments, the sort of energetic commitments, the sort of uh, connections which uh, you know go beyond words, and 
and that finding a way to go and sort of get that language back, I think, you know, give people access to that language is sort of really important. Because I, I think for a lot of folk, it is, you know, I know that in certainly in before Sunday assembly and before doing this, like I, like I didn't really think that I could be spiritual. I'm an atheist uh, and uh, oh, I, I went to the wilderness festival and I said uh, I was uh, as atheist as the universe was meaningless. And I thought that's, you know, there we go. Uh, that's uh, that's my uh, a good line, which I'll use again. That I think we're sort of missing some of the language and some of the education, even around the different feelings that we can have around these things. And that means that we can't really have access to, you know, imagining those futures. So. Cassie, what's that like vision that you have for like how the, you know, where do you get your hope from? Like if, you know, from the seeing these different things which are happening from like having these conversations about uh, the ways that change can happen. Like what's that, that sort of vision that you see? I, I do get hope from um, my nieces, like young, young people around me in my life. Um, although I'm, deeply concerned for them too and especially like their mental health and things like that but I get hope from young people I there's a lot of younger women of color that I think have the wisdom that we all need to pay much more attention to um and yeah and then I suppose personally I mean I get a lot of my inspiration from the sea, from water, that's just my thing, the moon, the moon and the sea and water. Um, I've spent a lot of time with water in the last four weeks and I think it's amazing for reminding, it, it's amazing for renewal. It's, it's amazing for that kind of flowing, washing away. Um, yeah, so that's one, one thing and then I suppose the other thing is just to always start with the collective um you know I, I feel like in a lot of the social change world there's still this you go away you work on yourself and then when you work on yourself you're ready to start working more in community and more systemically and actually I I feel like it's the other way around I feel like um you know, if if in everything you do, you're imagining that you are energy <laughs> that is connected to all the other energies and that sense of interdependence, that the perceiving of our interdependence as the way you go into everything that you do, I feel like that will in and of itself just create a whole different kind of experience for you in the world. Well, there we go. We can just leave it there. Cassie, thank you so much. Thanks so much for speaking with us and for giving us your time. That was a wonderful uh, conversation. So James, what did you think of that other than the fact that I got you some work? I know, I know. This is amazing. I love talking about narrative strategy. I think that there was something really deep and profound in that conversation, which is, and I hope it came across to our listeners, there's a gap. We feel like, I know you feel, Sanderson, and I certainly feel as well, that in contemporary secular society, there's some gap between a lot of what we're doing and our 
deepest commitments and our motivations for doing what we what we do that there's there's a lack of connecting tissue or an overarching narrative a story that connects things together and gives us reasons for doing things and that can sap a lot of even very good well-intentioned projects of their sort of motive energy the the thing that makes it feel really important to us and i just love this idea that cassie is working in the area of trying to build infrastructure to help people articulate those sorts of stories better uh, yeah i really love that conversation it's quite odd when she responded to my question because there's nothing really in her sort of public work which necessarily said that she really believes in energy and that everyone is connected i don't think uh but i thought that that was something which came across uh in what she's doing and i guess that that does again go back to some of the, what you're saying that there is her way of feeling it she said perceiving interdependence you know we all know that we're interdependent you know the COVID happens and suddenly we've run out of shoes for our children or you know like bog roll or whatever there might be some new transformer or whatever toy you're buying at the moment james that they suddenly disappeared from our shelves but for us to really feel that is you know is something which is harder to do and then you know as she's saying like pointing to these things of these embodied practices you know these things these embodied ways of knowing collective ways of knowing Right. So, that collective element, I think, is really that came out at the end of the conversation is really key. The insight that a lot of leadership development work and social change work, social justice work that I've been involved in is very individualistic in that it's about looking at your biases and doing self-work. You know, there's this whole term for it of self-work, you know, and the idea is kind of you perfect yourself. And then once you're perfect, then you're ready to go and do social change. And I think Cassie's completely right. That's absolutely the wrong way around. You improve your understanding of these issues and your ability to work with others by doing that, by, by connecting with people in your community and by looking to the connections you can make with other people first and being generous with each other while you learn. I think that was insightful too. How'd you like them apples? Uh, like I said with James, I love that chat. And now what is happening? Yeah, I suppose the uh, I'm about to go on holiday, which is exciting, heading up to Scotland, where I am from, or where, sort of where I'm from, but I've moved around so much that I'm not really from one place. And the place where I thought that I was from growing up is Scotland. But then subsequently, I've never lived in Scotland. So it ends up being a really long description, a really long sort of story about how I think that I'm from somewhere where uh, I've never lived because I'm not really from somewhere else uh, and in fact most of my life i've lived in london so well not quite most a lot of it uh, so yeah gonna go up there go and live in a cottage in the woods for a week with my boy and my wife and and for a period my father which will uh, not be entirely relaxing but you know we will grow and learn and really deepen that uh sort of occasionally a uh, tricky relationship, but also very rewarding. Yeah, he's not listening. Uh, so that's what I'm heading off to do. I wish you so much love with whatever is going on in your life. Uh, I don't really have much else to chat about now, so I'll get out of the way. Thanks so much to Cassie. Thanks so much to James Croft as Ev. Uh, and 
then to Mav Shetty, the producer, and to Roman Rapak and Miroshot, who made the music that you're listening to right now. <laughs> <laughs>